Hello, everybody. Welcome back to a brand new episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, I'm your host, Simon. I'm still one of my writers, in this case, Matt. Thank you, Matt, for writing me a script. The son of Sam, the bogeyman of 1970s New York. This was the guy who just went around killing random people in cars, right? I feel like I've made a video about this dude before, and it's just like, what are you doing? Don't be a psycho. <laughs> anyway, we got, a, we got a long one today. We're going to learn a lot more about him. So uh, let's jump in, shall we? New York City. Arguably the most recognizable and well-known city on the planet. The Big Apple is known for many things, from the Empire State Building to Times Square to Broadway to the Statue of Liberty. It has too many landmarks to count. And fun fact, I actually spent my early years in New York, just about an hour and a half away from the city. And we go visit family there fairly regularly. So for me and others, NYC is a place of fond memories and big dreams. I've been to New York City. <laughs> That's why I've lived there. Got friends there. So I went once. I went for a weekend. <laughs> It was nice. It's very big. It's very big. And really tall buildings. I think that's the biggest difference between New York and European cities. Like, London's massive as well, but it's very flat. There's not a lot of tall buildings. And when there are, they're all, like, clustered. Like, there's Canary Wharf, which is just a cluster of skyscrapers. And honestly, they'd all look really small compared to New York skyscrapers. It's just very flat. New York, you just walk down the street, and there's just giant buildings everywhere. Because it's all built on a tiny island. I mean, it's a big island, but there's a lot of people living on that island. There's a much darker side to the city, though. While beautiful, some sections of the city are run down and crime-ridden, even with all the police involvement. And back in the day, in the 1970s, that was still the case. The time of disco balls and drugs, New York was a haven of crime, with the mob running most of the operations from the shadows. That's not what we're here to talk about today, though. That's a topic saved for a different piece. No, today we're here to talk about the spree of bloodshed and panic that took place between July 1976 and July 1977. In those 12 months, the night was terrorized by a broken individual with a gun, a man who went on a rampage that left six people dead and 11 more injured. He did this all for a very simple reason, because he believed that Satan had told him to kill. Oh, we're going to get into an interesting moral debate then today about whether he's culpable for his crimes if Satan is telling him to kill. It's an interesting one, isn't it? It's like, why did you kill people? The devil told me to do it. The devil speaks to me. And it's like, holy sh**, are you, like, where do you go? Do you go to, like, ADX Florence and hang out with the Unabomber? Well, not anymore, because he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> or do you, um, do you go to a mental institution where they give you some drugs that hopefully make you hear the devil? Not anymore. And then they can release you and you could be a functional member of society because you don't hear the devil anymore? It's a good question. I get the feeling that the son of Sam just got executed or whatever, because it's America. <laughs> They're like, kids. What we do have is execution. What we don't have is healthcare. Let's go. My own mother remembers this time well, that she was in the city during the attacks, and she was afraid some nights to even leave her home for fear of running into the monster plaguing the dark streets after sunset. To quote her, I remember that time very well. It was a very scary time. I remember when he was caught. We were very careful during that time. We were very aware as young people. As the same darkness swallows us once again, let's now begin our tale. A tale of death, fear, mental illness, satanic worship, and a dog. This is the tale of one of the most infamous murderers in American history, whose name ranks right up alongside such evils as Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, John Wayne Gacy. Originally, he was known as the 44 caliber killer, but for his depravities and the insanity that caused it all, he'll be forever known as another name, the Son of Sam. From the Shadows it was 1.10am on July the 29th, 1976, and it was a night that seemed like any other. That night, two friends, 18-year-old emergency medical technician Donna Laurier and 19-year-old nurse Jody Valenti, were sitting in Jody's Oldsmobile near the entrance of Donna's apartment building in the Bronx. I was just watching a TV show, uh, the new series of Black Mirror, and I think it was the last episode was set in like the north of England in 1979, which is eight years before I'm born. And I'm just watching this. 
And I'm like, oh my God, it looks like the past so much. <laughs> I'm like, that's only eight years before I was born. And it looked like they were fully in the past. Like they all dressed weird. They had like tiny ass televisions. All the cars looked like you'd get into a tiny accident and immediately die. It was like, uh, I felt, it made me feel old. It made me feel old. And I know my parents were only in like their 20s and stuff. So they were younger than me at that time. But the fact that it was only eight years before I was born was kind of like, holy sh**. Like, I was really born in the past. Oh my God. What do you guys think of that new season of Black Mirror? Uh, it's on Netflix right now. I guess most people have seen it, right? Because Netflix pushed that sh so hard on me. The last, I liked Black Mirror. I really enjoyed, like some episodes were absolutely amazing. Some episodes were too much. I was like, I gotta stop watching this. This is way too crazy. I just felt the new season was just a bit, well, I don't want to be mean, but it was a bit wasn't it? It was like, it didn't really make you think that hard. It wasn't that clever. Whereas the previous seasons were like, holy sh like some of those I thought about for weeks, just weeks went by and I'd still be thinking about a Black Mirror episode, just like dwelling on it. And for this one, I'm like, eh, whatever. But you're not here for my television criticism, you're here for crime, so let's carry on. They had just pulled up after having a wonderful night at the local disco. Donna's parents, Mike and Rose Laurier, came down to tell the girls to wrap it up and that it was late and nothing good happens at one in the morning. If only they knew how right they were. As her parents left, Donna opened the car door and was getting ready to head in as well when she took notice of something. A man appeared from the shadows and was quickly making his way over to the car. Who is this guy? She asked. What does he want? Sadly, those would be the last words she ever uttered. With that, the man crouched and produced a brown paper bag. Before the girls could react, the man pulled a gun from the bag, braced one elbow on his knee, aimed the weapon with both hands and fired three times. One bullet hit Donna in the neck, while another landed in Jodie's thigh. The third missed them both entirely. With that, the man simply got up, walked away, stowing the gun back in the paper bag as he calmly went back to his vehicle and drove off into the night. Just two young women, health workers, caregivers, one whose life was snuffed out, the other injured and undoubtedly scarred mentally for the rest of her days. Mike Laurier had heard the shots and raced down to see what had happened. Jodie had managed to get out of the car and was crawling towards him, crying for help. Horror filled him when he saw a bleeding Donna slumped inside the vehicle. Barefoot and clad only in his pajamas, Mike rushed the girls to the hospital, praying to any god who would listen that he would get there in time to save his daughter. Sadly, that wasn't to be. The police were called, and they arrived to question Jodie as well as Donna's parents. Jodie stated that she didn't know the killer, that she didn't recognize him at all, but she was able to describe him. A white man in his 30s stood about 5 foot 8 or 173 centimeters tall, looked to weigh about 200 pounds or 91 kilos, and had short, dark, and curly hair. When the officers asked Mike about it, he echoed Jodie's statement, giving a similar description of the man, and stated that he and his wife had seen the man Jodie described, that he was sitting in a yellow compact car parked nearby before the attack. Said car was spotted by neighbors in the area, and they all claimed that it had been driving around the neighborhood for hours before the incident. After they examined the bullets that were taken from both victims as well as the missed shot, the police were able to identify the gun used as a 44 caliber charter armed bulldog. Other than that, they didn't have much to go on. The mob was very prevalent in New York, as previously stated, so they theorized that there was, was perhaps a mob execution, that maybe the girls had been mistaken for somebody else, and they paid the price for it. Was the mob in the habit of killing teenage girls in cars parked outside their parents' houses? Doesn't the mob generally, like, knock off, like, I don't know, shady looking dudes in their 20s? Or, like, mob bosses in their 50s? That kind of thing? Like, who did they mistake them for? Did the mob kill people's children? That doesn't sound very mobby. Like, I mean, it does in a way, but it also doesn't. Like, I kind of imagine the mob having, like, they're not, like, gangs. I mean, they are a gang, but it's not like, you, you don't imagine the mob like MS-13. Like MS-13, I imagine like someone upsets them and they'll just kill your entire family. But the mob will be like, no, we don't do it like that. <laughs> 
<laughs> they'll just kill the kill the responsible person. But maybe I've I don't know. The mobs it's probably been like romanticized in my brain. Not that I find like anything about the mob being like, oh yeah, they're the good guys. But it's like it's been a little bit romanticized in my mind from like Hollywood and stuff. Whereas MS13, it's just like those guys are monsters. Or even more frightening, this was simply a random attack by a lone individual, a psycho with a gun who took the opportunity to murder a couple of women in the dead of night. If only they knew how close they were in that assumption. After this, things would go quiet for about three months. The police had the description of the shooter as well as the car, but there were no leads or breakthroughs, no new information to go on. That is until October the 23rd, 1976, when a similar attack went down. Yeah, because we know these are random now, that makes it very hard for the police. Like, if there's no motive, it's really hard. Like, you've got to just rely on evidence, and then you've got nowhere to start from. Like, if even if you've got fingerprints, where do you go to get a pool of people to fingerprint? I mean, other than the criminals who have already been arrested. And this guy, if this guy's never been arrested or fingerprinted, then you're just starting from scratch. And it's going to be really hard if it's just a random crime. Over in Flushing, Queens, next to Baum Park, 20-year-old Citibank security guard Carl Denaro and 18-year-old Queens College student Rosemary Keenan were just sitting together in a car, talking and enjoying each other's company. They'd known each other from college and had been partying it up with friends for a good portion of the night. This was mostly because Carl was on his way out to the Air Force for at least four years, so he wanted to have a night to remember with the people he loved. After the party had died down, Carl drove Rosemary home, none the wiser that the night was about to go from fun to hellish. All of a sudden, shots rang out in the night and the window exploded inward. Both Carl and Rosemary screamed, but Rosemary managed to wrangle away into the driver's seat, start the car and speed out of there, heading back to the bar where their friends rushed them to the hospital. Rosemary had only suffered superficial wounds from the shattered glass, but Carl had actually taken a shot to the head and was bleeding pretty badly. Thankfully, they both managed to survive, but Carl had to get a metal plate inserted to replace the portion of his skull that had been severely damaged. Jesus Christ. If, I get, if you get shot in the head and you have to have a metal plate in there, I'll be like, oh, thank God. Like, getting shot in the head is not something... If someone was like, okay, we're going to shoot you in the head, it's like, okay, well, that's it then, isn't it? That's good night. It's not like, you know, most people I feel like die from getting shot in the head. Bullets found embedded in the side of the car and the one from Carl's skull indicated that the shots came from a 44 caliber gun. The police were in full investigation mode at this point, particularly since Rosemary's father had just happened to be a 20-year police veteran detective of the NYPD. It was their assumption that because of Carl's long hair, the shooter had believed it was two women in the car, not a man and a woman. Unfortunately, no matter how much they looked into it, there wasn't any evidence to point to this being anything other than a random attack. They initially didn't link the attack with the previous shooting. Neither Rosemary or Carl had gotten a look at the shooter. Each shooting took place in different boroughs of the city, and as a result, each shooting was being looked at by separate precincts. With no new leads to follow up on, the case went cold. And then it happened again. It was November the 27th, 1976, and this time it was high school students, 18-year-old Joanne Lamino and 16-year-old Donna Damasi in Bellarose, Queens. It was a little after midnight, and the two friends were heading home from a wonderful time at the cinema. As a film lover myself, I know that feeling well, leaving the movie theater on a cool, full night, smiling after seeing the latest blockbuster. Sadly, this feeling would be short-lived. I haven't been to the cinema in so long. Oh, the last time I went to the cinema, I saw a terrible movie. Like, because I, I got kids right and it's hard to like get away for like two hours and if i'm going out like for an evening i generally would rather go to dinner because you know you can watch a movie at home or whatever but i'd love going to the cinema like when i had infinite free time love going to the cinema and god the last movie we saw we were at my wife's my in-law's house and uh they're taking care of the kids for the evening so we go to the cinema and it's already late i got a bit of like 9 30 because the kids get up so early <laughs> we see it's like guardians of the galaxy 7 or something it's so bad and i know people love these movies but they're so bad. I'm just, we're just, I'm just watching this, and I didn't want to go see it. And I was like, "There's literally nothing on. There's li this is the only movie we could possibly enjoy." And I'm like, "I'm not going to enjoy this." And she's like, "I'll just give it a try." And I'm like, "Okay, fine, I'll give it a try." 
And so it's about an hour in and I just look at her and she looks at me and then we just nod at each other and we leave. <laughs> it's so stupid. And people are hating it now. People are hating me now because they're like, oh, Simon, it's funny. Everyone loves it. And I'm like, it's just stupid. <laughs> the two young ladies had made it to Donna's house and were speaking on the porch, undoubtedly moments away from parting ways and finishing their night without incident when they were approached by a man dressed in military fatigues. His skin was pale and his physique was on the chubby side. In an oddly high-pitched voice, he asked the ladies, can you tell me how to get? Sorry. <laughs> Can you tell me how to get? Drawing their attention. Before he finished the sentence, however, the man produced a handgun. Donna and Joanne didn't even have time to react before he started shooting. Jono was shot in the neck and Joanne in the back, both falling to the porch, crying out in pain. Then, instead of finishing off his helpless victims, the monster simply unloaded into the side of the apartment building before running off into the darkness. Donna's family raced them to the hospital and both girls thankfully survived. Joanne, though, would sadly carry the burden of that night for the rest of her life, since the bullet had shattered her spine, leaving her paralyzed from the waist down. Once more, upon examination, the bullets were concluded to have come from a 44 caliber gun, and a neighbor who had heard the gunshots and had gotten a look at a shooter would explain that it was a young man with blonde hair. So, that's six people who were attacked, each in pairs, five of them severely wounded, one left a paraplegic, and one's life being brutally snuffed out. So, this guy, he's attacked six people with a gun in the middle of the night, they don't expect it, and he only kills one of them. He's a bitch isn't he <laughs> like are you intending to kill these people what like what the fuck? each incident was looked into each with little to no evidence to suggest that there are anything more than completely random occurrences if you ask me that's what makes this so frightening none of these pairs knew the others none of them had anything linking them together aside from the fact they were mostly women and one mistaken for a woman each with similar colored hair it was totally by chance each attack ending in blood and misery and he was far from finished. Just before we continue with today's video, a quick word from today's fantastic sponsor, Quince. Look, summer is here, and your wardrobe almost certainly needs an upgrade, doesn't it? Instead of a flimsy, fast fashion haul, how about spending your money wisely on high-quality essentials that will last beyond this season? Quince is the absolute place to go for quiet luxury without paying luxury prices. They offer a range of must-have items like 100% European linen under $50, luxurious mulberry silk skirts, and of course, Italian leather bags and jewelry from $30. All their prices are 50 to 80% less than similar brands, and because Quince creates timeless classical pieces that won't go out of fashion, you'll have them in your closet forever, which is fantastic. And you're probably wondering right now, how do they do it? Well, Quince partners directly with top factories to cut the costs of the middleman and pass the savings right on to you. And what's even better is that Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, as well as premium, eco-friendly fabrics and finishes. So you can feel good about getting high-quality items that last longer. So upgrade your closet this summer with Quince right now. Go to quince.com casual to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's q-u-i-n-c-e.com casual for free shipping and 365 Day returns. Quince.com slash casual. And now back to today's episode. The bloodshed continues. The attack back in November was the last incident in 1976, so while people were still on edge, the two months of peace seemed like a welcome reprieve. It wouldn't last long, though, as come January the 30th, 1977, the shooter struck again, christening the new year in blood. It was 12.40am and the 26-year-old secretary Christine Frund and her fiancé 13-year-old bartender John Deal were sitting alone in Deal's car near the Forest Hills LIRR station in Queens. They had just seen the new hit movie Rocky and were on their way to the dance hall to continue their fun for the night. 
and that's when everything went to hell. Three gunshots echoed in the night air, each penetrating the car. The shooter wreathed in darkness, unseen to his victims. John reacted quickly and drove away in panic, only suffering superficial wounds, but Christine wasn't so lucky. Two of the three bullets had struck her fatally in the head, and while John was able to get her to the hospital, she succumbed to her injuries. A loving couple, soon to be married, enjoying a date night together, only for everything to come crashing down in the most heartbreaking way imaginable. With this attack, the police finally seemed to get their act together. Um, to be fair, New York City is very large. Each of these boroughs is probably like a city-sized area in itself. And while I'm like, yeah, you should have tied together these random attacks, I'm sure there are lots of crimes that seem random. So, And also it's the past, so they don't have computers to talk to each other. And like famously, we've done episodes where it was like, yeah, then he just left the state. <laughs> and it's like, okay, and that's it. Like the states don't talk to each other. And in the past, it was like, no. Nah. I think even sometimes today, it's like, no, 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 just moved to a different state and uh, just never went back to the other state. And that's that. <laughs> it's like, but you're in the same country. You didn't go off to Lebanon or something. Detective Sergeant Joe Coffey was brought onto the case, and along with NYPD Captain Joe Donut. No, I'm just kidding. I just made the joke because the first name guy's name was Coffey or Kofi. Coffee, C-O-F-F-E-Y. So I was like, ah, let's make a joke. And it's a stupid joke. Let's just, his name was Borelli. Joe Borelli. And they put the case under a microscope, examining the bullets from the scene. They determined that once again, the gun used was a 44 caliber firearm. And upon further inspection, they made the connection that the gun used in the homicide was likely the same one used in the previous attacks. Why did you make such a stupid joke when you're talking about people getting murdered, Simon? What's actually wrong with you? They finally made it public the type of gun used in these crimes and that all the attacks spanning back to July were likely connected because all the targets happened to be young women with long, dark hair. <laughs> that summer, there were many more blondes. Because of this, thousands across you women across New York City began to dye their hair or buy wigs in order to have a better chance of avoiding the killer. Oh my god, my joke is truth. Thankfully, my mother's a natural blonde, so I'd like to think that she was able to relax at that time at least slightly. The only discrepancy was the original attacker was said to be a man with dark hair, and the witness to the Lamino de Massey attack said was said to be blonde, so composite sketches were released for both, and the police suggested that multiple gunmen were involved. A task force or dyed his hair. A task or just eyewitness testimony, notoriously unreliable. A task force was formed in order to track down this murderous gunman with Borelli and Coffee at the head of the hunt. Despite the two different hair colors given, they were of the belief that all of these attacks were the workings of a soul psycho prowling the streets of the different boroughs of New York City, armed with what the police identified as a 44 caliber bulldog. Despite their efforts, no suspects could initially be identified. Yeah, because it's just so, the pool is so huge. It's like, yeah, we're looking for a guy. He's a uh, medium height. He's a. Uh, got blonde hair or brown hair or just dark hair in general. <laughs> it's like, okay, so we've narrowed it down to millions of men. Then, just over a month later, it happened again. 19-year-old Columbia University student Virginia Voskarishian was walking home on March the 8th, 1977. She was a hardworking young lady who worked diligently in order to make the most of the opportunities afforded to her by her family after they had fled Bulgaria for the USA back in the 1950s. It was about 7.30 at night when she was accosted by a man armed with a gun. In a last-ditch effort to protect herself, she lifted the textbooks that, had been, that she had been carrying up to her head as a makeshift shield. But sadly, it did nothing. The gun discharged, the books were pierced, and the bullet went directly into her face. She was dead before she hit the ground. The creepy part? Virginia lived only a block from where Christine had been shot. He had returned to the area, seemingly unafraid of getting caught. He simply wanted to kill. And so he did. The even creepier part? While fleeing the scene, the killer passed by a man who had witnessed the whole thing. Hi, mister, was his only remark as he vanished into the night. Totally calm, 
totally nonplussed by the situation as if it was just a normal night in the Big Apple. Police were at a loss and were running themselves ragged trying to close this case. They were able to match a bullet to those of the previous cases, but that didn't help them get any closer to catching the madman. They were looking at every lead every clue and still coming up empty-handed. To quote Captain Borelli, if you watch detectives at any homicide, you'll notice they go about their jobs unemotionally. They didn't want to look at her. They knew it was senseless. She was someone beautiful, and she was laying under the sheet. A bullet in her face had destroyed her. It began to grab at them in the guts, and they just turned away. These were veterans, and they couldn't take it. At a press conference held by the NYPD informing the public that the killer had struck once more, the public, of course, was in a panic. They had a monster on the loose in their city, and the police were no closer to catching him than they'd previously been. The only thing they had to go on was a description and a basic one at that. A white male, 25 to 30 years old, 6 feet tall, medium build with dark hair. <laughs> It's everybody. Take a walk down the street or go to your lo local supermarket or mall and tell me how, people, how many people you spot matching that description. It's the literal definition of a needle in a haystack. With that, the task force rebranded as Operation Omega under the direction of Deputy Inspector Timothy Dowd. 61 years old, he was a tough a tenacious cop, as well as being sharp as a tack, having majored in Latin and English at City College and having studied for a master's degree in business at the Baroque, Baruch, Baruch School of City College. It was all hands on deck now, and they were going to need it. The next attack happened a little over a month later, on April the 17th, 1977. This was 20-year-old tow truck operator Alexander Asau and 18-year-old Lehman College student and aspiring actress and model Valentina Suriani. They were sitting together in Alexander's brother's car on the Hutchinson River Parkway service road in the Bronx. What they were doing there is unknown, but we sadly know what happened to them. Out of the darkness came the villain of our story, pulling up alongside them in his own car, gun in hand, and only a few blocks away from the scene of the Loria Valenti shooting. He unloaded on the couple. Four shots were heard. The police were called from a nearby neighbor, and they arrived at the scene to find Valentina in the driver's seat, shot once in the head, and Alexander next to her, shot twice in the head. Valentina died at the scene, and while he was able to make it to the hospital, Alexander soon joined her. He wasn't able to give the police a description before he passed, but they had a suspicion as to who it was. The Phantom had struck again, stolen two new souls for his collection, and had disappeared into the night once again, sight unseen. This was the latest killing in the string of shootings, and by this time the police and the press already had a name for the monster. Until that point, he'd been given the moniker of the 44 caliber killer, but after this killing, the maniac would choose his own name. Correspondence from a Killer now, remember when Jack the Ripper is suspected of mailing letters to the police and press during his reign of terror? Well, here we find something rather similar. While investigating the scene of Alexander and Valentina's murders, the police came upon something shocking. A handwritten letter was placed near the bodies, and it was addressed to NYPD Captain Joseph Borelli. Written mostly in block capitals, with a few lowercase letters, and written in what appeared to be a version of Scottish English, the killer taunted the police for their inability to stop him and expressed his wanton desire to continue his murderous spree. Most notably, the killer also gives himself a name, one that would stick, and one that would be etched into the annals of true crime history forever. The Son of Sam. I don't like it when killers get to choose their own thing. It's sort of like, the Son of Sam is a cool name, and it's like, why can't we just call him… I feel like we should give killers not cool names. Like, not like, the XYZ killer, or monster incarnate, or something like that. We should just call him like, Bellend One. Because then it's like, I don't know, it, it's not nice to like, give these guys reputations you know that that sound in any way cool okay the letter read as follows it's a long quote let's get into it dear captain joseph Borelli, i'm deeply hurt by your calling me a woman sick oh okay so he means woman but he can't spell this quote's gonna be a nightmare isn't it 
I am not, but I am a monster. I am the son of Sam. I am a little brat. When Father Sam gets drunk, he gets mean. He beats his family. Sometimes he ties me up to the back of the house. Other times he locks me in the garage. Sam loves to drink blood. Go out and kill, commands Father Sam. Behind our house, some rest. Mostly young, raped and slaughtered. Their blood drain just bones now. Papa Sam keeps me locked in the attic too. I can't get out, but I look at the attic window and watch the world go by. I feel like an outsider. I am on a different wavelength than everybody else, programmed to kill. However, to stop me, you must kill me. Attention all police. Shoot me first. Shoot to kill or else. Keep out of my way or you will die. Papa Sam is old now. He needs some blood to preserve his youth. He has too many heart attacks. Too many heart attacks. Oh, me hoot. It hurts, sonny boy. Oh, okay. That's, that means, oh, my heart, it hurts, sonny boy. I miss my pretty princess most of all. She's resting in our lady's house, but I'll see her soon. I am the monster, Beelzebub, the chubby behemoth. I love to hunt, prowling the streets, looking for fair game, tasty meat. The women of Queens are the prettiest of all. I must be in the water they drink. I live for the hunt. My life. Blood for Papa. Mr. Brelli, sir, I don't want to kill anyone no more. No more, but I must. Honor thy father. I want to make love to the world. I love people. I don't belong on earth. Return me to Yahoo's, to the people of Queens. I love you, and I will want to wish you all a happy Easter. May God bless you in this life and the next. And for now, I say goodbye and goodnight. Police, let me haunt you with these words. I'll be back, I'll be back. To be interpreted as bang, 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 bang. Ugh. Yours in murder, Mr. Monster. That is just an insane. Now, now I, I read that and I'm like, that's insane. But I'm reading that and I'm like, this, this reads like some emails I get from crazy people. Like, who are like, Simon, I have classified knowledge about this and it's written in like this crazy English that makes no sense. Like, it's just like the ramblings of a madman. And they're like, your video about the pyramids of Egypt and aliens is wrong. I discovered this in 1970s and I've been holding on to it forever. The number of emails I get like this is unbelievable. It's like, I mean, it's not daily, but I'll get several things like this a month from like people who are just like rambling. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> okay. Like archive. <laughs> I don't reply. Can you say nut job? Yes, I can. Nut job. The killer seemed to be reveling in the bloodshed in his wake, while also blaming his father, this Sam, for his actions. This is the devil, right? This is what Matt described in the intro as like the devil talking to him. The devil, for some reason, is Sam, and he's the son of Sam, like he's the son of the devil. This is weird. In the same breaths, he seemed to blame a dark-haired nurse for his father's death, which <laughs> I didn't even get that. I was too busy just... I realized I probably read that text and didn't take a lot of it in because I was just trying to process the crazy English so it could sound some somewhat coherent, which seemed to correspond with the original shooting of Donna Loria and Jodie Valenti. It also seemed to reflect how he now only seemed to go after women or those he thought were women with similar looks and hair color. When looking through the letter, it seemed to indicate that much like a number of other serial killers, the murderer enjoyed the kills and got a kick out of taunting the police and the media. With this, the police were able to get a psych profile put together where the killer was described as neurotic, potentially suffering from paranoid schizophrenia, and believed that he was possessed by demons. With that, the police went into overdrive. While no useful fingerprints could be lifted from the envelope, that didn't stop them from tracking down every person they could that was registered as owning a 44 Bulldog, questioning them extensively, and forensically testing each gun. Regardless of their efforts, they couldn't find the perp 
or his gun. It was a dead end. And it didn't help that the Omega Task Force received a tidal wave of tip calls. Apparently, everyone knew the killer, wherever, whether it was their next-door neighbor who came home late, the cashier at the grocery store who gave them weird looks every week, their cousin who had a weird obsession with guns, the creepy guy who spent way, much, way too much time drinking at the bar and had a deep hatred for pretty girls. The list was endless. All of those people should be on a list, though. <laughs> the calls were constant, and none of it helped in the slightest. New York City Mayor Abraham Beam was exasperated about the whole thing. He hated how the monster had the nerve to give himself a name. Yeah, me too. And one that the media would quickly latch onto, only increasing his own ego and infamy. Infamy, that's the word I'm looking for. It increases their infamy. Calling a press conference, he stated, The killings were a horror. The police were under terrible strain. Everyone was beginning to question his ability to capture the gunman. The letter fused everything together. It was a man against an entire city. He had written this one policeman, but I knew it wasn't that captain that he was writing about. It was every cop who was after him. All 25,000 of them. And then another letter came. It was May the 30th, 1977, and a Daily News columnist by the name of Jimmy Breslin received a handwritten letter. Postmarked early the same day in Englewood, New Jersey, it claims to wait, they do post in the same day? Whoa, that's quick. I knew I know like in the past they used to, at least in England, they used to deliver post in the morning and in the evening, I think. Is that true? Did they used to do that? I think they did. Not when I was a kid, but like I heard about it back in the day. Wow, like same day post delivery. I feel like that happens and then it didn't happen and now like there's delivery companies like it's cool how you can like just go on the internet and buy something that someone can deliver it to your house in like 90 minutes there's one company they're like yeah we'll get it to you in 30 minutes and i'm like what so it's just like oh, i need something to work boom you pay for it it's expensive i think it'll cost like 20 30 bucks to get it delivered but the company will just like they'll just bring it to you <laughs> you're like okay thanks in the letter he mentions a number of the victims by name and continues to mock the nypd for their constant inability in catching him and stopping the killings titled blood and family darkness and death absolute depravity 44 the letter reads as follows and another long quote and i'm gonna struggle my way through you're welcome dear audience hello from the gutters of nyc which are also filled with dog manure vomit stale wine urine and blood hello from the sewers of nyc which swallow up these delicacies when they are washed away by the sweeper trucks hello from the cracks in the sidewalk of nyc and from the ants that dwell in these cracks and feed on the dried blood of the dead that has settled into the cracks are you trying to be like artistic or whatever because it's not working it just sounds like the ramblings of a madman who doesn't have a brilliant grasp of the english language or indeed creativity jb Oh, that's the name. That's the initials of the policeman, right? I'm just dropping you a line to get to let you know that I appreciate your interest in those recent and horrendous 44 killings. I also want to tell you that I read your read your column daily and find it quite informative. Tell me, Jim, what will you have for July 29th? You can forget about me if you like, because I don't care for publicity. However, you must not forget Donna Loria, and you cannot let the people forget her either. She was a very, very sweet girl, but Sam's a thirsty lad, and he won't let me stop killing until he gets his fill of blood. Mr. Breslin, sir, don't think that because you haven't heard from me for a while that I went to sleep. No, rather, I am still here, like a spirit roaming the night, thirsty, hungry, seldom stopping to rest, anxious to please Sam. I love my work. Now the void has been filled. Perhaps we shall meet face to face someday, or perhaps I will be blown away by cops with smoking 38s. Whatever, if I shall be fortunate enough to meet you, I will tell you all about Sam, if you like, and I will introduce you to him. His name is Sam the Terrible. Not knowing what the future holds, I shall say farewell, and I will see you at the next job. Or should I say, you will see my handiwork at the next job. Remember, Ms. Loria. Thank you. In their blood, and from the gutter, Sam's creation, 44, here are some of the names to help you along. 
forward them to the inspector for use by NCIC, the Duke of Death, the Wicked King Wicker, the 22 Disciples of Hell, John Wheaties, rapist and suffocator of young girls. P.S. Please inform all the detectives working the slaying to remain. P.S. J.B. Please inform all the detectives working the case that I wish them the best of luck. Keep him digging, drive on, think positive, get off your butts, knock on coffins, etc. Upon my capture, I promise to buy all the guys working on the case a new pair of shoes if I can get the money. Son of Sam. This is just crazy ramblings. I'm just like lost. What are you even saying? I'll give him this. The bastard of the pension for nicknames. Underneath the Son of Sam signature was a strange logo that seemed to be a combination of an X and an S as well as a cross and the symbols for the male and female genders. What did catch many eyes, including those of the cops, was the mention of July the 29th. If you recall, it was the date of the first attack one year previous, the date that Donna Lorio was killed. It was handed over to the police and they came up with a number of theories, ones that sadly didn't go anywhere from thinking the writer was a comic book letterer based on his writing style or that the phrase wicked king wicker was a reference to the 1973 horror movie the wicker man a week after it was received and with portions of it held back at the request of the police the letter was made public in the daily news with an urging from breslin for the killer to stop this madness stop the murders and to turn himself in he didn't the final attacks on June the 26th, 1977, the monster struck again. 17-year-old high school graduate Judy Placido and 20-year-old mechanics helper Salvador Sao Lupo were spending time together at a local disco, the Elephas in Bayside, Queens. At around 3 in the morning, Judy turned to Sal and asked him to take her home, that it was getting late and she was worried about the phantom psycho out there gunning people down. By that time, the disco was pretty much empty. The threat of the Son of Sam had everyone on edge and having similar thoughts, heading to the safety of their homes as the night dragged on. Sal agreed to take her home and so they left. They got into Sal's car, and the world around them exploded with the sound of gunshots. Judy recalled the following. All of a sudden, I heard echoing in the car. There wasn't any pain, just ringing in my ears. I looked at Sal, and his eyes were open wide, just like his mouth. There were no screams. I don't know why I didn't scream. All the windows had been closed. I couldn't understand what this pounding noise was. After that, I felt disorientated, dazed. Three gunshots had pierced the car, with Sal being wounded in the right forearm and Judy taking the worst of it, taking shots in the right temple, shoulder and back of the neck. Both managed to exit the car and attempted to run back to the disco, but Judy collapsed in the parking lot. Sal managed to get help, so the police and an ambulance were called, and Judy miraculously was able to survive. In a dark twist of irony, Detective Coffey had been outside the Elephas about 15 minutes before the shooting. When the call came over the radio, he was one of the first on the scene, asking if Judy or Sal had seen their shooter. Neither of them had seen the attacker, same as before, with Sal having thought initially that it was just some punk throwing rocks at their car before the truth became clear. There were witnesses, though, who saw a tall, dark-haired man in a leisure suit fleeing the area, with one even claiming to see him leave in a car, giving them a partial license plate number. As the 29th of July quickly started creeping up, the Omega Task Force and the police as a whole were in near panic. They were desperate to find the killer. They were sure that with the anniversary of the first attack nearing, someone else was going to either die or get hurt on or near that day. The media did their part to help corral the public, making sure they knew the significance of that date and warning everyone to be even more careful than they already were. Everyone waited with bated breath as July the 29th, 1997 came and went. The sun rose and the sun set, and no attacks or murders went down. Everyone let out a collective sigh. They'd been scared for nothing. Yeah, I feel like an anniversary attack is like, <laughs> that seems like a bad idea, because everyone's gonna, is gonna do an anniversary attack, let's all be extra careful. That's not the night that he'll attack, because you'll know you're all being extra careful. And then he struck one final time. 
It was July the 31st, two days after the first anniversary of the Son of Sam attack. All of the previous attacks had either been in Queens or the Bronx, but not this time. This time it happened in Brooklyn. It was early in the morning, and 20-year-old secretary Stacy Moskowitz and 20-year-old clothing salesman Robert Bobby Violante uh, were sitting in his father's car under a streetlight near a city park in the neighborhood of Bath Beach. It should be noted that unlike any of the other women targeted by the killer, Stacy had unmistakable blonde hair. The two of them had just been on their first date to the movies and were having a wonderful night. Then, as if to put a cap on the date night, Bobby makes a suggestion. Bobby, how about taking a walk in the park? Stacy, what if Son of Sam is hiding there? Bobby, this is Brooklyn, not Queens. Come on. While nervous, Stacy relented, and the two of them exited the car and made their way into the park for a nice nighttime walk together. Making their way over to the swings, Bobby leaned in for a kiss with her. And that's when she spoke up. The figure of a man in the park had caught her eye, and when she informed Bobby, he turned just as the man turned around and vanished into the night. Still frightened, Stacy asked Bobby to return to the car, which they did, though Bobby convinced her to stay for a few more minutes that he'd like another kiss. She once more relented, the two leaning in to end their night, their first date with a proper kiss, and then it happened. Bobby recalled later on the terror of that moment. All of a sudden, I heard like a humming sound. First, I thought I had glass break. Then I didn't hear Stacy anymore. I didn't feel anything, but I saw her fall away from me. I don't know who got shot first, her or me. While the two of them were kissing, the son of Sam had emerged from the shadows and approached the car, getting within three feet of the passenger door. Lifting his gun, he unloaded into the window with five shots. Bobby was shot twice in the face, and Stacy was shot once in the head. Stacy slumped back into the seat, while Bobby, injured but coherent, pressed down on the horn and then pulled himself from the car, screaming for help. The police were on the scene in no time flat, but by then, the son of Sam was long gone. Both Stacy and Bobby were taken to Coney Island Hospital, with Stacy's parents arriving in hospital just in time to see their daughter being wheeled in. Bobby, thankfully, survived, but had lost his left eye and only had about 20% vision in the right. Stacy's condition continued to get worse, and they were forced to transfer her to Kings County Hospital, where they were better equipped to deal with such extensive head trauma. Unfortunately, it was all for naught, and 38 hours later, she succumbed to her wounds while in the hospital. And just like that, We've now covered the entirety of the killings attributed to the son of Sam. This rampage lasted a whole year and left the city that never sleeps in a waking nightmare. The horrible story that had captured the attention of the whole world. The story of a madman on the loose in the most iconic city on the planet, gun in hands, murdering beautiful women in the dark of the night. The police were at their wits' ends. The public were terrified, and they wanted nothing more than to get this lunatic off the streets. And thankfully, after this final dark event, things quickly began to fall into place. Closing in on evil. So normally here on The Casual Criminalist, we would have come down on the police for their constant f**k-ups and endless incompetence. Well, only when they deserve it. And in this case, I'm not too inclined to place too much blame on them. These are random killings, which are notoriously hard to close in a very large city across a bunch of different areas. It's gonna be real tricky. However, as noted through most of the script today, the NYPD, after figuring out they had a true-to-form serial killer on their hands, were out in full force trying to track down this unyielding monster. Yeah, it's not like they were sitting on their hands. They were on it. To quickly recap, they tried to track down every lead. They brought in everyone who had registered the confirmed murder weapon, and they even fired every one of those weapons to try and link the ballistic markings to the proper gun. Sadly, no matter how deep they dug or how far they looked, the Son of Sam seemed to be two steps ahead of them, even going so far as to send those disturbing letters to the lead investigators in the press. They had their own Jack the Ripper on their hands, and every single night they dreaded that the peace would be broken by the sound of gunfire and the screams of dying women. Soon, though, little threads littered through a number of the incidents would soon be woven together, and the resulting tapestry would lead them directly to one man. Wow. 
Where are they going to draw these leads from? Like, from what I can tell, there is not a lot to go on. Cecilia Davis was a resident of Brooklyn, and she had been walking her dog near the scene of the final attack. It was late at night when she came upon a traffic cop ticketing a parked car, a yellow car. To be more specific, it was a yellow 1974 Galaxy. She didn't think much at first, but that was before the officer had left and a figure exited the vehicle. A young man, white complexion, short, curly, dark hair, and he was looking right at her, a dark object in his hand. Getting the creeps, she turned tail and booked it back home, but not before she heard what sounded like gunshots ringing out behind her. It took her a few days before she reported this to the police. They looked up the car the ticket was given to. That is, that's it? That's how you get busted? Excellent. Good work on you, um, young woman who put this together. The Yonkers Police Department was contacted and set up an interview with the individual, and the officer who took the call had a tale to tell. This was Officer Wheat Carr. And as soon as <laughs> the guy's name's Wheat, and as soon, <laughs> it's a weird name. And as soon as the man's name came up, she had an instant reaction. Let me tell you about him. I know him. He lives right behind me. You see, Wheat Carr is the daughter of Sam Carr. And at this point, I expect everyone's alarm bells to be ringing. The cars had a fellow tenant that had been giving them issues for a good while, one that hadn't been paying the rent and had been complaining about their dog, a black lab named Harvey. At some point, someone had shot Harvey, but thankfully the dog survived, as did a German shepherd who had also been shot. Suspicion immediately fell on the tenant, and Wheat believed that he had been the one who had tried to kill their dog. On top of that, the man had impersonated the cars on at least one occasion in a rather ominous way. Back on June the 10th, a man named Jack Asara received a letter in the mail, one addressed to him from Sam and Francis Carr. It read as follows, Dear Jack, I'm sorry to hear about that fall you took from the roof of your house. Just want to say I'm sorry, but I'm sure it won't be long until you feel much better, healthy, well and strong. Please be careful next time. Since you're going to be confined for a long time, let us know if Nan needs anything. Sincerely, Sam and Francis. Jack had never met the cars, nor had he ever taken a fall. He asked Sam and Francis about the letter, and they too knew nothing about it. However, they told Jack that they had also received letters, ones apologizing for the shooting of their dog as well as other dogs in the area. This only heightened their already growing suspicion, and it put Jack on his toes, thinking someone was out to get him. He probably didn't go up on his roof for quite some time after that. Yeah, this is mega creepy. And it just points to the fact that the guy who's behind all of this is just deranged. One threads a coincidence. But two threads is enough to raise eyebrows. Between the incidents with Cecilia Davis and the link to the name of Sam, the police in the two different departments now believed they might have just found their serial killer. They might have found the son of Sam. On August 10, 1977, the police tracked down the yellow 1974 Galaxy. It was parked outside an apartment building at 35 Pine Street, Yonkers, New York. They searched the car and found a gun in the back seat, a duffel bag filled with ammunition, maps of the crime scenes, and a threatening letter addressed to Inspector Timothy Dowd of the Son of Sam Task Force. Mate. <laughs> Don't leave all the evidence the police require for a conviction in the boot of your car. That's the trunk of your car, Americans. That's just silly. The maps of the crime scenes, the gun, ammunition. Hide that sh better. What are you up to? Don't make maps of your crime scenes. Can you say case closed? And before anyone says anything about searching the car without a warrant, they reasoned that it was a legal search based on the fact that the gun was out in plain sight on the back seat, which is admittedly pretty flimsy, but they got away with it. Yeah, was the gun really? Although the guy has maps of his crime scenes in the car. Like, he's like, first murder, here. <laughs> Or like, whatever. So maybe he was so sloppy as to leave the gun on the back seat of the car. That seems fine to me. Cool. I mean, unless it wasn't on the back seat of the car. Then just go get a warrant. It's not going to be hard. Just have a cop sit on the car. Just have him sit there 24 hours a day until a judge signs that warrant. I'd be very nervous. 
I feel the gun must have been on the back seat of the car. Because this is a big case that the police want to close. And there's no way they're risking that chain of custody of the evidence or whatever it is, you know, uh, or like mishandling evidence. If there's any shot that it's going to ruin the case. Because that would be insane if that's how he gets off. Regardless, they staked out his apartment building, waiting for a proper warrant to arrest the suspect and search his apartment. They wanted to do this as by the book as possible, since they couldn't risk this monster slipping through their fingers and disappearing for good. Exactly. 10pm rolled around, and the warrant had yet to arrive. But the suspect did. He was a 24-year-old white man, about 5 foot 8 inches tall, weighed approximately 200 pounds, had short, dark, and curly hair. He exited the apartment and walked right to his car, a brown paper bag in hand. Sound familiar? As he got into the driver's seat, the police couldn't wait any longer, warrant or no warrant. Detective John Falotico was the first officer to react, drawing his gun and going right up to the car. He stuck the barrel of the gun up to the man's temple and told him to put his hands up. Is that how cops do it? Why would you need to put it on his temple? Just point it in from further away. Be like, yo, I'm a cop. I'm going to shoot you. Hands up, mate. Drop that brown bag, okay? And then if he goes for the brown bag, pop, pop. Like... This is America. You shoot people at the drop of hats. <laughs> Why do you need to go up and hold it to his temple? That's fucking gangster. The man simply looked up at De Detective Falotico, gave him a soft smile and said, Well, you got me. How come it took you so long? Meet David Berkowitz. Before we dive into the insanity even further, let's rewind and get better acquainted with our madman. Let's start off with some parental context. Elizabeth, let me guess, let me guess, child of abuse. Elizabeth Betty Broder was a Jewish woman who grew up in the Bronx and in night. Although he is crazy, so maybe this is maybe this is just like his brain went Pip! and just went wrong. That's possible because this is like he's the devil is talking to him. It's not like the classic serial killer. I got beaten by my by my parents. And in 1936, she married an Italian man, Tony Falco. Things were rocky from the start, okay, never mind. Because <laughs> Betty's family didn't approve of their relationships since Tony wasn't Jewish. It also didn't help that the whole family was poor, as most people were during the Great Depression days. They started a fish market and had a daughter named Rosalind, but the market eventually went bust, and after less than four years of marriage, Tony left Betty for another woman. Lonely and depressed, Betty soon started an affair with a married man named Joseph Kleinman. They were together for three years at the time, Betty got pregnant again, but old Joseph wasn't having any of that. Like a prime-time dirtbag, he threatened to leave Betty and not pay child support if she didn't give up the baby, as well as forbade her from giving the child his last name. Apparently, she didn't think much of it as she elected to stay with Joseph and give up the child. She arranged things with a nice Jewish couple in the Bronx by the name of Pearl and Nathan Berkowitz, and on June the 1st, 1953, in Brooklyn, New York, Richard David Falco, aka David Richard Berkowitz, was born. To make things easy, or we'll simply be referring him to him as Berkowitz, from this point on, as his name was changed almost immediately after he was adopted. Pearl and Nathan had always wanted a child, so they made sure Berkowitz barely wanted for anything and tried to give him the best upbringing that they possibly could with their modest means. At first, there were no clear warning signs, aside from him being a loner. He was always big for his age, which led to him seeing himself as unappealing and unattractive, so he isolated himself. He also had a very violent temperament and became known as a bully who would attack other kids, sometimes for no reason at all, using his larger size to his advantage. At one point, it stated that Berkowitz sustained a head injury when he was younger. Whether that contributed to his development is unknown, but given the history of monsters on this channel, it seems rather likely. Difficult and spoiled, Berkowitz became a nuisance, and soon enough he started showing a fascination with fire. Uh-oh, that's the sign. Loner, bully, making fires. Here we go. Just another box filled on the serial killer checklist. Although, 
No abusive parents, it seems. I mean, his parents gave him up, but when he was a baby, so I don't think that really counts, maybe a little, um, towards like him becoming a psycho. And his parents spoiled him. That sounds like, I mean, I don't think you should spoil your kids. It's probably not the best idea for like super productive individuals in society, but it's better than beating them. He started setting bugs ablaze for his amusement before moving on to setting parts of the neighborhood on fire. It got to the point that his parents actually sought out counseling for him, though it didn't seem to help. Yeah, if some dude, if your kid's doing arson, counseling's a very good move. That is man, that should be mandatory. Things only got worse after Pearl's death. Despite it all, it seemed the Berkowitz loved his mother, and he was devastated when he was informed that she had breast cancer. She and Nathan tried to hide it from him as they kept him in the dark for two years, which only made the eventual realization all the worse. She sadly lost the battle and passed away in the fall of 1967, which broke Berkowitz entirely. His interest in school waned, his grades tanked, and his bad attitude only became worse. Berkowitz and his father moved into a new apartment at 170 Drysaloop in Co-op City in 1967, soon after Pearl's death. They continued to live together through his high school years, though their relationship took a turn when Nathan remarried. Berkowitz disliked his new stepmother, causing him to act up even more. And when Berkowitz graduated from Christopher Columbus High School in 1971, Nathan moved with his wife to a retirement home in Florida, leaving his son all alone in the apartment. At this point, Berkowitz's mind had already begun to shift. Fantasy, how old are they? Like, they moved to a retirement home in Florida when he's leaving high school? Isn't a retirement home where people go to die? Or is that, no, that's a nursing home. Retirement, but you've got to be like in your 60s at least, right? When do people retire? 65? But I couldn't, I couldn't possibly imagine my parents living in a retirement home and they're in their mid-60s. So... <laughs> well, they're just like, I just want to go down to Florida and play shuffleboard. I'm just going to embrace my old person. It's like, yeah, you're 40. It's like, yeah, yeah, I just want to. It's just time. I'm retiring early. I'm going to live in a retirement community. Fantasy quickly began to encroach on reality, even conjuring up relationships that weren't really there. Specifically, he believed that he was going out with a girl by the name of Iris Gerhardt. But according to her, they were no more than friends. Then, shortly after completing high school, Berkowitz enlisted in the U.S. Army. Now, we all know how this goes, right? Dishonorable discharge or desertion, right? Well, apparently not. He stayed for three whole years and seemed to respond well to the rigorous discipline the army provided. Yeah, I think there's two ways it goes. Like, sometimes they do just drop out, dishonorable discharge or whatever. But, mo like, often, it's like, yeah, no, no, army was good for these people. Like, they, they like, reins him in a little bit. I mean, obviously, it doesn't solve his problems because he goes on to murder people. But apparently, he does quite well. He became an excellent marksman and was <laughs> excellent marksman. He could barely kill people. And he was particularly proficient with rifles. He even served with a infantry division in South Korea before receiving an honorable discharge in 1974. Once more, he was isolated. Once more, he was alone. And it was around this time that Berkowitz was able to track down his birth mother, Betty. At first, he was thrilled to get to know the woman that gave him life. After the death of Pearl, there was a mother-sized hole in his heart that he was never quite able to fill. And getting to know Betty seemed to begin healing that rather large hole. Betty and his half-sister, Rosalind, did everything they could to make him feel like family, made him feel like he had a home with them. But soon enough, the question of his real father came up, and that's when Betty informed Berkowitz of the situation regarding his birth. She told him how Joseph, who himself had passed away from cancer in 1965, didn't want anything to do with him, forcing her to give him up for adoption. This new revelation, coupled with the feelings of abandonment he felt towards Nathan after he left him for Florida with his new wife, seemed to fracture something vital within David Berkowitz. His mind was already a fragile thing, but now it was broken and there was no fixing it. Someone giving you up when you're a baby. It could, it's like, well, you were a baby. It's just definitely not your fault. But I guess like that can weigh on you some. I don't think that, I genuinely don't think that would weigh on me. I'd be like, yo, okay, that's all on you, mate. 
Like, that's got nothing to do with me. Soon he started making excuses for not visiting his mother and sister as much, eventually ceasing to visit altogether. His anger and hatred towards women had been building up over the years, and this new information, the feeling of being unwanted and lied to by those who, meant to, who were meant to love him, sent him right over the edge. Why does he hate women? It was both his pair, his, both his dads who abandoned him. His biological dad was like, no, give him away. And then his uh, adoptive dad moved to a retirement home in Florida. Why is it women you hate? It should be men. Psychotic. After enrolling at the Bronx Community College in the spring of 1975, Berkowitz studied there for one year before he went to work as a driver for the Co-op City Taxi Company in 1976. He also worked odd jobs as a security guard and a mail sorter for the post office. By this time, though, it already begun committing crimes, both violent and otherwise. Before he even attempted to commit outright murder, Berkowitz had set some 1,500 fires across New York, and he kept a diary of every single one, even referring to himself as the Phantom of the Bronx. In his book, Whoever Fights Monsters, author and FBI veteran Robert Ressler stated the following, Most arsonists like the feeling that they're responsible for the excitement and violence of a fire. With a simple act of lighting matches, they control events in society that are not normally controlled. They orchestrate the fire, the screaming arrival and deployment of fire trucks and firefighters, the gathering crowds the destruction of property, sometimes of people. In 1975, Berkowitz got his hands on the Satanic Bible, written by Anton LaVey, the founder of the Church of Satan and the religion known as Satanism. This undoubtedly was the last thing that Berkowitz needed, but it did the trick. After reading through its teachings, he became convinced that all the dark thoughts in his head, all the evil intentions in his heart, were because he was puppeted by evil spirits. Now, this clearly was a load of hogwash, but to Berkowitz, this all felt very real, and with this new information, he gave himself over to the darkness completely. If that's you, if you're like, you read that book and you're like, yeah, it's the evil demons inside of me, it's not. Just go see a psychiatrist and they'll, they'll, they'll fix you up. <laughs> or if not, they'll put you in a place where you can't hurt people. At this point, Berkowitz truly began to spiral, his mind falling deeper and deeper into the darkness. In what appeared to be a one last-ditch effort to stop, in one final call for help, he wrote a letter to his father, Nathan. It's cold and gloomy here in New York, but that's okay because the weather fits my mood. Gloomy. Dad, the world is getting dark now. I can feel it more and more. The people, they are developing a hatred for me. You wouldn't believe it how much some people hate me. Many of them want to kill me. I don't even know these people, but still they hate me. Most of them are young. I walk down the street and they spit and kick at me. The girls call me ugly and they bother me the most. The guys just laugh. Anyhow, things will soon change for the better. This sounds like um, paranoia. Paranoid schizophrenia. Paranoid schizophrenia. He's like paranoid, and people are talking to him. Like the devil's talking to him, right? It's a, uh, look. I'm not a psychiatrist, so I, I, I'm not an expert. But like, I don't know. He does sound very mentally ill, doesn't he? Then on Christmas Eve, 1975, Berkowitz made his first attempt on a human life. He didn't have his trademark 44 caliber bulldog yet, so instead he went with a large hunting knife. According to him, he drove around for hours that day, looking for the perfect target. Eventually, he found one. He spotted a young Hispanic woman leaving a local grocery store, and the demons in his head told him she has to be sacrificed. With that, he parked the car, went up behind the unsuspecting girl, and plunged the knife into her back over and over again. According to the Berkowitz, the woman didn't have much of a reaction of her, simply turning to look at him before screaming as loud as she could. He then fled the scene that the police were unable to verify these claims. One claim they were able to verify was the attack on 15-year-old Michelle Foreman, a sophomore at Truman High School. On the same day as the supposed first attack, Berkowitz saw Michelle walking on a bridge near Dreiser Loop. He went up to her and drove the knife into her head. 
He then stabbed her an additional five times before taking the knife and fleeing the scene. Michelle thankfully survived the attack, but her wounds were so severe that she was made to stay in the hospital for a week in order to recover. <laughs> Actually, doesn't sound that bad. Like a week in the hospital, you got stabbed in the head and then five times. I feel like I'd be in the hospital for months. They're stitching me up, making me learn to like do things again. Christ. The dog made me do it. Since the beginning of the story, there have been a couple of instances, including in the intro of the piece, where dogs have been mentioned. And now it's time to find out why. Oh god, yeah. Is the dog talking to him? Is that he thinks there's a devil inside the dog and the dog is talking to him and do it to telling him to do these terrible things right? I vaguely remember this. With the Christmas Eve stabbings behind him, Berkowitz thought it best to move. So in January 1966, he relocated to an apartment building in Yonkers. Said building was owned by Jack and Nan Kassara. If that name sounds familiar, it's because Jack was the recipient of the letter claiming that it had fallen off his roof. Can you say correlation? On top of that, the Kassaras had a dog, a German Shepherd. He signed a two-year lease and paid a $200 security deposit. When it came to the dog, Berkowitz knew no rest. The shepherd was loud and noisy, barking and howling all throughout the day and night. Oh my god, yes, just drive me a bit posse. Like, there was a dog once, and it was just like out in the garden nearby, just like barking, 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 barking all day. It'd be like, ah, oh, shut up! Ah, oh, shut up, please! <laughs> and then a neighbor of mine once had a bird, it would be like, whip! Oh my god. I have to say now, I have very nice neighbors. Like, just everyone's so quiet. Never get disturbed by anybody. It's brilliant. Soon I'm going to move to a house where I won't have any neighbors. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> just be by myself. Now all of us can understand the annoyance of a noisy dog. Hell, I own three dogs! And at times they make me want to rip my hair out and start barking at anyone passing the house. And at times they make me want to rip my hair out when they start barking at anyone passing by the house. But to Berkowitz, the constant noise was much more than that. To his demented and decaying mind, the howls of the dogs were commands from Satan. The dog was possessed by a devil, and each bark was in order to go out and kill, to find a young woman and spill their blood. For their hellish master. In Berkowitz's own words, I'd come home to Caligny Avenue at 6.30 in the morning. It would begin then, the howling. On my days off, I heard it all night too. It made me scream. I used to scream out, begging for the noise to stop. It never did. The demons never stopped. I couldn't sleep. I had no strength to fight. I could barely drive. Coming home from work one night, I almost killed myself in the car. I needed to sleep. The demons wouldn't give me any peace. In regards to the dog's owners, he also blamed them for the constant torments, believing them to also be demons from the pit. He believed that Jack in particular was a general from hell by the name of Jack Cosmo, who ordered all the dogs of New York to kill and consume blood. When I moved in, the Kassaras seemed nice and quiet, but they tricked me. They lied. I thought they were members of the human race. They weren't. Suddenly, the Kassaras began to show up with the demons. They began to howl and cry out, blood and death. They called out the names of the masters, the blood monster, John Wheaties, General Jack Cosmo. It didn't take long, three months to be exact, for Berkowitz to meet his breaking point. He moved out of the apartment and never asked for his deposit back. It was then that he moved into an apartment at 35 Pine Street in Yonkers. This was, of course, the apartment building that he was eventually caught in, and as stated before, he had neighbors, another dog. This was Sam Carr and the black Labrador retriever, Harvey. The torment started all over again, and Berkowitz hated Harvey for it. To try and end the noise, he attempted to use a Molotov cocktail to burn the dog alive, but it fizzled out before he could hurt Harvey or anyone else. So Berkowitz went for something a bit simpler, shooting Harvey with his 44 Bulldog. 
Thankfully, Harvey wasn't killed and made a recovery. Regardless, it wasn't just Harvey that was the problem, but Sam as well. To Berkovit, Sam was possessed by a demon, also named Sam. Not exactly the most creative hellspawn, was he? So when David Berkowitz called himself the son of Sam, he was referring to the demon inside his neighbor, not Sam Carr himself. To quote, This Sam and his demons have been responsible for a lot of killing. Soon enough, after all the torments in his mind over the years, Berkowitz engaged in his year-long reign of bullets and blood. The darkness had won, and a demon was loose within the Big Apple. Six souls had been stolen away, eleven had been horribly scarred, and the whole city was in a panic, and the rest, as they say, is history. Justice Done after being arrested on the charges of murder on August the 10th, 1977, David Berkowitz was interrogated the next day and he held nothing back. For 30 minutes, he confessed to every single shooting, every single murder, and he explained his motive. He said that demons were to blame and that they were the ones causing him to go out and commit murder and even went so far as to blame the dogs, Sam Carr and Jack Cassara. Most importantly, Berkowitz made it crystal clear that he intended to plead guilty. As far as motive goes, Berkowitz seemed to flip-flop a little bit. At first, he stuck to the story that the demon dogs were commanding him to kill, but then he went on to later claim in 1979 that it was all a hoax. At times, he alluded to having accomplices, going so far as to say, There are other sons out there. God help the world. Hell, there are those to this day that do believe he didn't work alone. That makes sense, given the supposed sightings of different people and cars, though nothing has been proven. To that end, Berkowitz stated on several occasions that he wasn't alone, that he was part of a murderous satanic cult that operated throughout the city. He said that it only actually killed three of the victims, and the others were killed by fellow members of this cult, all using the same weapon. Yeah, sure, David, and I'm Robin Williams. And just who were these so-called members? Berkowitz was tight-lipped on that front, but he did give two names. John and Michael Carr, the sons of Sam Carr, the neighbor and owner of Harvey. <laughs> these are just people who were tangentially in your life. If it was just like, oh yeah, no, it was random people who I met up with a basement, in a basement somewhere, and we did like demonic things, then I'd be like, that's more likely. But you're just naming random people who were around you. I mean, what are the odds? Of course, this was a lot of poppycock, and both John and Michael were long dead when this information came out, so they couldn't even speak up to defend themselves, but safe to say, he made it all up. So now, what about the trial? Well, as stated, Berkowitz planned to plead guilty, but there was the issue of his competence. Yeah, I, I don't think he's competent. He's like dogs. He's saying the devil is talking to him through dogs and that he should go killing people. Like, he is not right. They know he's a schizophrenic. I really don't think he's competent. He underwent several evaluations before going to court and he was diagnosed as a schizophrenic, but at the end of the day, he was real competent to stand trial three times. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so a little uh, behind the scenes of me recording this. I've actually recorded this all already. <laughs> I've recorded from now until the end of the episode. I did realize the memory card was full. So the reason I know he's a schizophrenic is because I read this about 15 minutes ago. Looked up at the recording monitor at the end of finishing today's episode. I was like, oh no, how far do I have to go back? And it's like, it's probably 15 minutes, 10 minutes, something like that. It was, it was disappointing. So I knew it was a schizophrenic because I've read this before. I know how today's episode ends. <laughs> As of 1 minute 54 seconds ago, that's when I started recording again. <laughs> it's very frustrating when this happens. It's very it's very rare because the memory cards, they record like 18 hours a video. So it's not very often. But then I'm like, oh, God damn it. But at the end of the day, he was ruled competent to stand trial three times. Oh, really? I, I knew this because I've read it already. But I'm genuine. I was like the first time around, I was genuinely surprised that he was ruled competent. He doesn't seem competent at all. His defense emerged him multiple times to plead not guilty by reason of insanity, but he wasn't having any of it. He wished to pay for his crimes and he wanted the world to know what he had done. On May the 8th, 1978, he appeared in court, calm, cool and collected and pled guilty to all charges. This didn't stop him from trying to put on a show, though. At his sentencing two weeks later, 
He broke away from the guards and attempted to jump out of a window of the seventh floor courtroom. He was thankfully restrained, but that didn't stop him from making a spectacle of himself. He repeatedly chanted, Stacy was a whore, and I'd kill her again, I'd kill all of them again, which led to another competency test, which he passed. Again, how is he passing this competency test? Like, he doesn't know who Stacy is. He was killing random people. And to say kill them all again, it's like, he's not some, he's mad. He's just, he's a schizophrenic. It just seems clear. And then he wants to plead guilty. I feel like the courts should step in and be like, bro, you can't plead guilty because that's the, you're pleading guilty because that's part of your condition. On June the 12th, 1978, Berkowitz was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison for each murder to be served consecutively. Sorry, Simon, no death penalty today. And I don't think he deserves the death penalty because he's not in my, like the courts are saying he's mentally competent enough to stand trial so he could get the death penalty or whatever. But I personally, like from what I've read today, I don't think that's true. I, I think he's not competent and he's like to kill him to execute him would be executing a mentally ill person who's not in control of their faculties. He was housed in a number of different facilities from Attica to Sing Sing to Clinton Correctional. Today, he spends his time at Shawangunk Correctional Facility in the town of Shawangunk, Ulster County, New York, where he's seen as a model prisoner just awaiting his next parole hearing. Yes, the son of Sam gets parole hearings. Why? He's in prison for 25 years to life for each murder. He's never getting out of prison. The first scheduled 25 years after he was sentenced, and the most recent one was in 2016. Both times, he was denied parole, and his 2020 parole hearing was postponed indefinitely due to COVID. COVID. Berkowitz claims that he's since become a pacifist and has converted to Christianity. Apparently, he now claims that he isn't a risk to the public, but I think we'll keep him where he is just to be on the safe side. Wrap up. So, with that, we end our tale for today. Uh, at the end of the day, what are we looking at here? Simply this. David Berkowitz is a mentally disturbed individual who hated the world and all those around him, especially women, so he took his anger out on the world by going on a year-long rampage. Again, I'm not, I, and I know that's what the court said, and I know that's what Matt says. But I, in my mind, I'm like, David Berkowitz was a mentally ill man who snapped and killed people because he was mentally ill. Is that, is that, is that an opinion that's unusual in this case? Because obviously he's been convicted and he goes off to prison and he's in prison for life and the parole boards are like, no, you're not getting out, David. But doesn't this just sound like he's mentally ill? Am I the only one who thinks that? Is there something that's not been covered today that indicates that he is just a serial killer? Just a regular ass, mentally competent serial killer? He took his gun to the streets and he killed when and where he pleased, and it's a miracle that there weren't more victims before it was all said and done. In several interviews with author Robert Ressler, he even admitted that the demon story was all nonsense, a way to protect himself when he was originally caught, and that he felt a sexual pleasure when murdering women. Yet he even kept a scrapbook with all the newspaper clippings of his crimes to keep his fantasies alive. He got off on the murder, he got off on the attention, and he enjoyed every second of it. That doesn't make any sense. Like, that just seems like something that he's saying because he's mentally unwell. Because if he was... It says right there, uh, he even admitted the story was a nonsense. A way to protect himself was when he was originally caught. His lawyers begged him to do an insanity plea. But he didn't. There was competency. And then they told him, say it's insanity. And he was like, no, I want to pay for my crimes. So it makes no sense that he's trying to get out of them. It just seems like he doesn't know what he's doing. 
because he's not mentally competent. Berkowitz is now one of the most well-known serial killers in American history, right up there with the likes of Bundy and Dahmer. There's an entire generation of people from the Big Apple that will always get a chill down their spine when they hear the name Son of Sam. And for good reason. At least they, along with the rest of the world, can rest easy knowing that there's a near 100% chance that he'll simply die in prison. He celebrated his 70th birthday this year, so there's a chance that his death isn't too far off in the future. Oh, one good thing did come out of this whole thing, and it's something that affects all those other criminals that crave the spotlight. The term Son of Sam law is a blanket term for laws that halt the ability of criminals from being able to profit from their crimes, namely from selling their story to publishers in the hopes that their, can, their story can be turned into books for profit. There are some that argue that such laws go against our right to spe free speech, but to that I say f them. Um, yeah, no, I'm with you on this one, Matt. Like, right to free speech, you, no one's restricting you. You can write your book. You just can't make money from it. You could go to a publisher and say like, hey, will I, I'll write this book. Will you publish it? And as long as that person doesn't make any money from it, that's fine. They're not limiting your freedom of speech. They did horrible crimes. Many of them killed multiple people and they want to make money off the memories of those they stole away. I don't think so. And with that, I wish to remember those whose lives were either taken or changed from the actions of David Berkowitz. Those people who did nothing wrong. They were just out enjoying their lives, having a fun night on the town, and this evil monster just decided to shatter their word worlds for his own sick pleasure. In your opinion, Matt, and I know in the opinions of the courts and all of that stuff, but also he was a he was a schizophrenic. The dead. Donna Loria, Christine Freund, Virginia Voskachian, Valentina Suriani, Alexandra Sau. Stacey Moskowitz, The Injured, Michelle Foreman and the Unnamed Hispanic Woman, Joni Valenti, Carl Donaro, Rosemary Keenan, Donna Damasi, Joanne Lamino, John Deal, Salvador Lupo, Judy Placido, Robert Violante. Rest in peace to all those lost and all those who lived. I hope your lives improve for the better after your dark experience with this awful madman. Dismembered Appendices. Number one. In 1999, a movie called Summer of Sam was released, directed by Spike Lee. It depicts the effect the Son of Sam killings had on a fictional group of characters in the Bronx. The killer himself, played by Michael Badaluco, being used more as a symbol and a metaphor for the times than anything else. Berkowitz was shown the movie, and he was reportedly disturbed by it, calling it exploitation of the ugliness of the past. Yes, sure, says the insane serial murderer. Other film portrayals include the 2008 director video film Son of Sam and the CBS TV movie out of the darkness. Number two, a number of songs have been inspired by David Berkowitz. Several examples include 1978's Son of Sam by the Dead Boys, 1978's Are You Receiving Me by XTC, 1989's Looking Down the Barrel of a Gun by the Beastie Boys, and 1993's Insane in the Brain by Cypress Hill. Number three, David Berkowitz has either been referenced or depicted several times in TV shows and documentaries. Example of this includes several episodes of the show Seinfeld, where he is directly referenced, the Netflix show Mindhunter, where he's played by Oliver Cooper, and the 2021 docuseries The Sons of Sam. A Descent into Darkness, which focused around the idea that Berkowitz didn't work alone. Number four, and here's a personal one for me. As of this writing, this is my 20th script for the show, and almost a year since my first script went live on the channel. God damn, time flies. It's been a year. Well, that's awesome. I want to take the time to thank you, Simon, for the opportunity and be a part of an amazing team that bring these dark stories to our audience. You're very welcome, Matt. It's a pleasure to have you. I've loved every second of it, even when things got tough, and it's helped me provide for my family. Well, I'm very happy to have been able to do that. I'm very happy to have you writing for us. It's, uh, I'm very much, in I enjoy myself. Thanks again. I personally consider myself to be the lesser of all the writers. Oh, don't say that. That's not true. But it means the world to me and everyone who enjoys what I've brought to the table. So thanks again. And to all the friends I made along the way, David, Liam, Emma, Matthew, Kevin, George, you guys are the best. I love you all. And I promise to get you out of the basement soon. <laughs> That's a nice ending. Um, thanks, Matt. 
I'll say it again. It's, it's really great to have you. I enjoy it. I can't believe it's been 20 scripts. That's brilliant. Um, yeah. Thank you. That's nice. And thank you, dear listener, for listening. Or if you're watching on YouTube, watching. Hello. And uh, I'll see you all in the next episode. Thanks for being here. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.